Good morning again. Thanks. It's good to see you. You know, last year, um, got to go on the, the Philippines trip and heard Jeff cast this vision. And when he would use the word agriculture, see, I'm from West Texas. So I had this completely wrong image in my mind when he would say agriculture. I was picturing big fields, tractors, crop dusters, fertilizers, uh, irrigation. And, uh, and then when we got to the village and saw how primitive um, things really are, realized that if you know how to grow a garden, you already know more than that village knows about growing things. They simply, all they know how to do is grow rice. And so the idea of agriculture is not that we're coming in and building some industry. We're simply teaching them how to grow fruits and vegetables and things that I grew up taking for granted, like the process of canning. I don't know if anybody ever does that anymore, but canning vegetables and fruits and preserving them. They don't, that was a foreign concept to them last, uh, last summer when I was there. Um, I spent some time with Pastor Dodon walking through the village meeting families and just telling them about this thing. And he was like, what is this thing you call canning? And, and I said, yeah, and then you can dig a hole in the ground. We call them cellars and it maintains temperature. And he's like, whoa. So, so like I, I say that to say that, you know, God may be calling you to go. And uh, with the most basic life skills that you've been blessed with here as a, as a 21st century American, you might be able to impart uh, some, some sense of sustainable life to them while sharing the gospel. And, uh, and I would say those of you who feel uh, the least adequate and like life won't allow you to go are probably the ones God is calling to go. So if you're that person, like there's just no way I could afford it or get off work, I'm praying for you uh, that you'll say yes and God will make a way. So be sure you do see the mission team after the service. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 5 today. We're going to make it all the way to 6. We only have this Sunday and next Sunday, and we're done with Ephesians and, and moving on. Um, it's been a great series. Um, what we've learned about the way Paul wrote this letter, Ephesians, that he starts off very heady in the beginning, very intellectual and theological, and really takes some time to explain the gospel, what it is, what it does for us and in us and to us and through us. And then as we, as we moved into chapter 4, then he got real practical started with church. This is how this plays out in church. And last week we saw how he uh, described how it plays out in community and in our relationships with one another. And today we're going to see how every arena of life is affected dramatically by our understanding and belief of the gospel. And so then we'll come back next week and we'll talk about the spiritual battle that we face every day. But this week we're going to be looking at how in marriage, in parenting, in being children, and even in our workplace, how all these arenas of life, we are to bear the image of God. Matter of fact, chapter 5 begins with these words in verse 1, be imitators of God. And so what we're learning is this, that you and I in Genesis 1, we were created to bear the image of God. That's literally how God describes us. Let us make man in our image to bear our image in the world. And so what we're seeing now is that through the gospel, through what Jesus has done on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, for those of us who believe, is now restoring that God-given purpose to bear his image in the world. So Paul begins with, be imitators of God. Now we get to verse uh, 22. I'm going to read through where we're going to be today, and then we'll come back and talk about it. He begins to talk about marriage, and then parenting, and then the workplace. So beginning in verse 22, uh, let's start there. Wives. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality in him. That's a pretty big section. Covers a lot of life, right? So what we're going to see is this beautiful gospel movement in us to reflect God's image in all of these arenas. Starting with marriage, we get this uh, fantastic, famous marriage advice for wives. Submit to your husbands. Now, in our, in our culture, this is not a real popular phrase to submit to anything or anyone, especially to say this to a woman. Uh, but it's God's word, so I believe it. No, I'm just kidding. So, um, so what we get here, though, so we have some options when we read passages like this, right? We can pull things out of context. Wives, submit to your husbands and stop there. We can build this heavily patriarch system where wives walk around in complete submission, never saying anything, eyes to the ground, and the husbands chase them around with a whip. Get to work, woman, Right? Okay, it's not all what's being portrayed here when we read it in context, especially when we get to husbands. Okay, so let's not even go there. But there is something beautiful about what God is calling wives to do, and it is to respect and to honor their husbands. Now, did you notice how many times through that whole long passage we heard just as, just as, just as, just as? So here's what, here's what Paul is calling wives to do to begin with is this. Wives, honor and respect your husbands in the same way just as the church honors and respects Christ, period. Now, I, I use this passage oftentimes in weddings. I did one yesterday, and I talk through what this means. And so one of the things that I usually will say to a young bride about this passage is this. Early on, everybody's excited and full of energy and gung-ho to do whatever God says. And so I would say to the young bride, listen, there are going to be a few days in your marriage, a few, where he is actually going to wake up in the morning worthy of your honor and your respect. There'll be a few. They'll be far between, but there'll be a few where he's on top of his game. 
He's doing his part, and he's worthy to be followed as he follows Jesus. So what do you do on the rest of the days? That's what the just as is for. You honor and you respect him in proportion to the way that the church honors and respects Christ, not in proportion with which he deserves it. That's, that's a hard thing, right, ladies? To choose to honor and respect and follow even when he's not on his game. And so I end there with the ladies and, and there's a little tension in the room and then I'll shift to the men and say, all right, husbands, you ready? You are to love her. High five, I can do that. Love her the same way that Christ loved the church. And then we get a description in, in the way he laid his life down for her. And that's not just when danger presents itself. That's an every day rolling out of bed, laying yourself down humbly and sacrificially for her. And then I turn and, and I'll say this. Now, here's the thing. Most days, she's going to be lovable. Most days, when the alarm clock goes off and everybody wakes up, you're going to look at her and say, I am a blessed man. <laughs> but there will be a few, right? And, and far in between, there'll be those rare moments, right, where she's just being a, you know, a jerk and she won't, she won't deserve it. Just It'll happen rarely, but be prepared for it, husbands, because it's going to happen. And this is what I say to the husbands. Now, your command to love her as Christ loved the church is not in proportion with which she deserves it, but that every day you would lay down your life for her in humility and service, whether she deserves it or not, just as Christ loved the church. And so what we see here is really that marriage has less to do with how happy I am and more to do with the joy I have in knowing that I'm being obedient to Christ. Now, that's different from how the world teaches marriage, isn't it? We grow up in a culture that says marriage is about me. Marriage is about me finding that perfect person to make me perfectly happy, to, to have all my interests, to know all, of, to love all my pet, you know, the things I do wrong, to encourage me to be the wind in my sails and the wind beneath my wings. And this is marriage. And it's, it's very self-centered, right? But when we go back to Genesis 2 and we read God's prescription and description of marriage, that, that the two were brought together as helpmates, counterparts, compliments, like two people on the opposite side of something heavy, picking it up together, in sync together, working hard together through life. And there's a difference between a temporary happiness that's found, right, in, in shallow things and a deep abiding joy in knowing you're being obedient to the Father. And there can be a joy, ladies, in honoring your husbands beyond what he deserves when you're doing it out of reverence for Christ. There's a joy in that. And husbands... There is a joy to be found in loving your wife self-sacrificially on those days, as rare as they are, that she doesn't deserve it. There's a joy to be had that happiness can't touch. And so what we see as we begin to move through these arenas of life is that really marriage is less about me and more about him. That the primary function of my marriage is to display the image of God. Now think about this, like especially parents. So hopefully you're, you're raising your children to know the gospel. God loves them, that Jesus has died in their place. He forgives sins. He's a God of grace and mercy. Hopefully you're teaching your kids that. But guess what, husbands? As your children began to think about what it looks like that Jesus might humble himself. As a valiant king and leader, humble himself to the point that he lays his life down 
on behalf of the church. When your children hear that in the gospel, what Paul is saying is that husbands, that they would know what that looks like by watching the way you love their mother. That the first tangible expression of the gospel would be husbands in the way you love their mother. So that they would say, I know what that looks like. I've seen daddy do that. I know. Now, he doesn't do a very good job at it, but I've seen him do it, and I know what it looks like. Now, in the same way, as we teach our children the value of church and what the church is, it's a body, it's a family, it's, it's the bride of Christ. And as you teach your children, you know, who's, who's in charge of the church? You say, well, it's not that funny man up there talking and pointing. It's actually Jesus. He's the head of the church. We follow him. As you teach your children that, that they would have an example in their home and say, I know what that looks like. Mommy, that's the way you follow daddy. And so we begin to see that marriage is less about us and more about him and his kingdom and bearing his image, first in our households, but then in the world around us. The council continues, and this is where Paul ends on marriage. He says this in verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast. It's that marriage bond covenant commitment. Hold fast to his wife and, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he begins verse 32, I love this. The mis this mystery is profound. Now if we're simply just looking to God's word for marriage advice and we hear Paul say, now this is a myster mysterious profound thing marriage is. All of a sudden, as husbands, we go, finally, right? The Bible just called her what she is. She, I don't get her. She's profound and mysterious and a little goofy, and I don't get it. Like, why do you cry so much? And if you know you're going to cry, why do you keep watching The Notebook? Like, just turn it off and watch something else. Like, women are just mysterious, right? And, and so right now, the ladies aren't laughing as much. They're looking at me going, oh, yeah, you want to talk mystery, right? So, like, Paint your face black and green and put on, you know, rubber waders and, or camo and, and go out to the, right, into the wilderness and get dirty and, and, and spray stuff on you that smells like other animals' urine. Like, that makes a lot of sense, right? There's plenty mysterious about our men, right? Why do you go out there on a well-mowed lawn and hit a ball and then go look for it? Like, quit hitting it and you can quit looking for it. It's pretty simple, but what Paul's about to say is this. Listen, I'm not even talking about your marriage. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. I'm primarily talking about the relationship between Christ and the church. That you would bear that out in your marriage. Oh, and by the way, look at where he drops at the end. However, while we're on the topic, however, let... Each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's fantastic marital advice. Not to produce surface level happiness, but to produce a deep immense joy in knowing you're being obedient to the Father and living for what you were created to do, to bear his image. Now the next thing Paul does is he shifts now to parenting. Starting with kids. So who are we talking about when we say kids? If you still live under your parents' roof we're still talking to you, okay? Whether you're 12 or 28, okay? There's a sense of you're still under there, right? Parents, we say that. As long as you're under my roof, you're gonna obey my rules. I think there's something biblical about that. That's why the man must leave his father and his mother to be united to his wife. So we're talking to anybody here who hasn't yet done that, stepped out to manage his own household or her own household. 
So here's the advice. Children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Can I get an amen? I heard a lot of women saying amen. <laughs> it's right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. You know that whole, I brought you in this world, I'll take you out. I think that's a biblical example of that. <laughs> if you want a long life, you'll obey me. I'll flat take you out. Now, in all seriousness, when we think about, this is primarily about disciplining, by the way, not just parenting in general, but the discipline component of parenting, right? Obedience to the parents, and then fathers are going to get some instruction on how to discipline kids. Um, there's, a, there's a beautiful connection here between um, this passage in Hebrews 12, where the author of Hebrews goes right into this conversation about discipline and the relationship between fathers and children. So from Hebrews 12, starting in verse 7, we hear these words. It is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. First and foremost, God's discipline in your life is an indicator that you're his. He doesn't discipline those who are not his children. Now he continues on. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, most of us, right? And we respected them, some of us. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, being our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, being God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, Right? Rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So a beautiful connection between our discipline, as we'll start with parents, to our children and God's discipline to us. But children, there's also something for you to reflect here. In the way you respond to your parents, you are supposed to be reflecting the way God's children respond to him. I'm going to challenge parents primarily today. Okay, children, I'm not dismissing young people, your role, okay, not. But I want to talk with parents for a minute. So what I'm hearing then, in the same way at marriage, in parenting, then it's less about behavior modification, it's more about shaping character and displaying the image of God. It's less about me getting my children to eat their food with their mouth shut, <laughs> Right? and more about them growing and being prepared to grow into a relationship with the Lord. Disciplining our children sets them up for a healthy future relationship with their Heavenly Father. Think of it like that, parents. It's less about modifying their behavior and more about shaping their character and setting them up with the right expectations of how God would lead them when, he, when they yield their lives to him. So that, so we, some beautiful things from Hebrews, by the way, um, about we respect our earthly fathers when discipline is done right, right? So um, parents, uh, there is a way to discipline your children in a way where they respect you for it. And we're not talking about that they like it all the time, but in the end, they respect you for it. Some of you had an earthly example like that. 
You look back on the discipline that you didn't like, and in the end, you respect and you appreciate it. Now, others maybe had a horrible example, right? And so there's a sense of resentment because of the way discipline was brought down to you. But let me ask you this. When your children become Christians and God begins to discipline them, will it be something that they are familiar with? Or will it be foreign to them? Let me ask it this way. When God disciplines your children, when they become Christians and give their lives to him, he's gonna discipline them. That's what we just read. Not only will it be something that they're familiar with, will it be something that they are able to respect because of the way that you have disciplined them? Let me ask it this way. Will it be something that they understand? Did you see what Hebrews said? Discipline trains us for righteousness. It's a teaching mechanism. Parents, disciplining is not me venting my emotions and my anger. Discipline is a training event. In every episode of discipline, we are to be teaching. Now, what I'm not saying is the 20-minute monologue lecture, but I am talking about interaction with our children, that we're training them, we're teaching them, we're helping participate in God shaping their character rather than simply modifying their behavior, making them scared of us. So think of it like this. Here's just an example. We're young in our parenting. We have a six-year-old the oldest. So we've been at this for six years. Um, so like for me, anytime there's discipline to be had where I need to pull the boys aside, um, I'm asking, how can I make this a teaching moment? How can I make sure they fully understand why we're here? So I ask a lot of questions, okay? And I ask questions like, okay, tell me why we're here. Like, why did daddy have to pull you aside? I listen to them recount it almost every time they know it. And if they don't know it, then I haven't been a good teacher on the front end. Or they're just being hard-headed, which sometimes happens. But for the most part, I'm evaluating how well have I done of teaching them that what, what I expect of them. And I listen for it. Then I hear a clear articulation of what was expected. Then I ask, what did daddy say would happen if you continued to do that? What am I doing? I'm training. I'm teaching. I'm asking. Did, was, did I give you enough information to understand what would happen? Yes, Daddy, you did. Then what we must be at is that you then have forgotten what you were to do. So I, I let them know. This is how I do it. I'm not saying this is the best example, best example in the world. But what I do is I say this. Then God has given Daddy the responsibility of reminding you. So that's why we're here, to remind you of that which you already know. And I, that's how I go into discipline with the boys every time. So far, I might find something better next year, but that's what I do. And so oftentimes I can just say to one of my boys, hey, does, does daddy need to remind you? And they know what that means. But here's the point. Whatever conversation you have, that you see it as a training moment. I'm, we're shaping character. We're not just modifying behavior. And ultimately our parenting is less about their manners at the table and more about setting them up to have a relationship with the king of kings. That when he says go, they obey. When he says stop, they listen. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's why we parent. That's why we discipline. Now, the next conversation that Paul has moving into Ephesians 6 is, is about the workplace. And it really begins as a conversation about slavery, it seems like. And so let's just set the, 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 the groundwork for this conversation. In no way is the Bible 
uh, condoning slavery as we understand it here in America. There's something totally different going on. Now, there were versions of that happening, okay, and have been historically through all of humanity, uh, but that's not what the Apostle Paul is endorsing here. The idea here is a bond-servant relationship with a master, which is primarily set up um, by the paying back of a debt, okay? So it's oftentimes how a person would get into this bond-servant relationship. They would owe money or they would have caused some kind of offense towards somebody. And so in retribution or in repayment, then that person then becomes a bond servant to them. And oftentimes, you know, the debt was so high that a person couldn't pay it back in their lifetime and their children would have to pay. And they would be born into bond servanthood and they would be bond servants paying back debt. Now, can you imagine our economy if we did it this way? Like no bankruptcy? Um, like this is the parable that Jesus uses in Matthew 18 to teach about grace and forgiveness. The king who wants to settle like, the accounts with his bondservant, same word, his slave, calls him in. Why was that person in slavery? He was indebted financially to this, this king and couldn't repay. And so the king forgives him completely. So the idea here is not shackles and chains and whips and abuse and oppression, but it's a sense of obligation that we have because of the debts we've incurred. Oh, that sounds a lot like work tomorrow, doesn't it? I mean, how many of us, right? The days we don't want to get out of bed, it's the debt we owe that motivates us to go. Uh, it's not a right way to live, by the way, but unfortunately that's an American culture because of this facade of the American dream. We borrow more than we can pay and then we become bond servants to our jobs, to our careers, to finance companies. The only other option is what? Bankruptcy, bail out. So here, when I'm reading this counsel, I'm hearing primarily, and he even says whether slave or free. So we know he's thinking about the work relationship between employees and employers here in this text. So in Ephesians uh, 6, verse, starting in verse 5, he says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Here it is, as you would who? Christ. You see that coming up again? So this has less to do with how worthy they are as your leader or your boss or your supervisor or your manager and has more to do with how worthy Jesus is. Is he worthy to be obeyed? Then, I, then I'm commissioning you to obey in your workplace. Now, the, the next part here in verse 6 and 7 says a real descriptive way what, what is meant. Not by the way of eye service. We know what that means, Right? I service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. So our commitment to the employer and to the company should reflect our commitment to Christ. You see the image bearer role here again? Not as I pleasers or as people, or as, not in I service or as people pleasers. Now, um, I uh, confessed this at men's ministry this last Wednesday. We had a fantastic conversation um, in men's ministry, we break off into small groups and we just get real honest with one another. We share our struggles, we pray for one another, and we challenge and encourage one another. And so one of the things that came up, we were talking about areas in life we were tempted and, and the pride of life came up. And, and, uh, and so I just confess to you what I confess to my brothers that one of, my, um, one of the temptations that I face on a weekly, if not daily basis, is this, to give myself to, to work really hard at the things that bring in return the greatest applause. Whether I'm interested in it or not, whether it's part of my job or not, I tend to work hardest and most passionate at, and this is my flesh, it's not right, at the things at the end of the day, more people were watching and more people were gonna go, oh, 
Oh, that Jason, he is just something. Oh, listen to him. I'm prone to that. I'm bent towards that. Being a people pleaser, doing things with eye service. I have a feeling that, that some of you may be as well when it comes to work. Giving yourself to the tasks that receive the, the notice, that catch the attention, and right? And then when we do things that people don't see us do, then we, we're just really crafty in how we, we bring it up casually in conversation, right? Say something about the, the spill on the floor, and we just keep talking, and somebody says, what spill on the floor? You go, oh, oh well, it's nothing. I mean, I cleaned it up. It was just nothing. But, but the spill on the, you know, we make a big, and we indirectly then are patting ourselves on the back. Because nobody was there to applaud us, so we need the applause. We need, right? We need the approval of man. And so in our work relationships, Paul is saying this. Don't just work hard when people are watching. Very plain, very simple. Which implies what? Work hard when people aren't watching. Don't just work hard when people are watching. But also this, work hard in areas that result in less praise and applause. Give yourselves to the mundane tasks that make the company work. And then don't, right, come around the back door and like try to drop a hint that you did something when nobody was around. Just do it. Do it as you do unto Christ. That's the point here. Then he says this, working from a heart with goodwill. If you have committed yourself to a company or a person to receive payment for your work, you've committed yourself to that company. If you work for a company you don't agree with and and you can't get on board with what they stand for, I would say this, it's not wrong to look for a company or look for another job. Now, don't just quit it. I'm not telling anybody to go quit your job, but you need to be able to somewhat stand behind what's being sold there, okay? So once that happens and you're in that job, where you with a clear conscience can do that, Here's what I believe he's saying by working with the goodwill, that we would work hard for the greater good of the company mission rather than our own. That it would be less about our trajectory in the company and more about the success of the whole. You see how that reflects, church? That you and I would be less ambitious about our strategic trajectory within the church to make it to that position. I wanna be a life group leader. Well, I mean, if you do, that's fantastic. Let's just make sure that we want to be life group leaders because we want the church to grow. We want the church to be healthy. We want to serve the greater mission. And we're supposed to do that at work. Why? Because we're supposed to reflect the gospel at work. Um, it means dropping that the um, that's not my job mentality. Does that bother anybody else? Okay, it does me. For the rest of you who it doesn't bother, you're bothering the rest of us, okay? <laughs> We're just being honest in here. We're all mostly all family. So, like, something needs to be done, and 10 people walk by it because it's not their job. What are we screaming in our heads? Somebody has to do that, right? The trash gets knocked over. The tr- how about the trash can liner drops down in the thing, and then people just keep throwing trash in it? Somebody has to pick that up and clean it up. Now, we can say, well, it's not my job. It's a custodian's job, it's the, right? And we can just let it go. Or in humility and service. Do you think, you think Jesus would do that? Ah, you know what, the cross, it's not my job. It's not my sin. Let them go pay for it, that's their job. Doesn't work that way, does it? How about we reflect that in our work? And you see something, now I'm talking about in the immediate situations. If it's ongoing, 
maybe that employee needs to have, you know, somebody needs to discipline that employee and say, listen, you're not taking out the trash. But if it's in the moment, right, when you can do it, just do it. Pick it up, pick it out, take it out, clean it up. I was using this reference in here in the first service. Like, so you go up to the copier and it's out of paper. Ugh, whose job is it to fill the copier up with paper? I don't know who needs to use it. You put some paper in the copier and then don't go tell people you did it. Just do it because it's the right thing to do. Working in your jobs with goodwill can be a reflection of the gospel. To say, this is how we are to serve our king. No task is too good for us. No job is too dirty that we wouldn't humble ourselves to do it, whether it's taking up trash or dealing with people's trash, right? But we reflect the gospel in our everyday workplaces. Now, there's some word here to employers and managers and bosses as well. It ends with supervisors. Um, so verse eight, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this will, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. This is ultimately about my relationship with him, not my relationship with my employer. Verse nine, masters, these are the bosses, the managers, those who have been entrusted over you. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening. Now, this can come out in some really hateful ways, and it can come out in subtle ways. Stop your threatening, knowing that it is he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality in him. I would just say this to those who have been blessed with a management position, that you understand your role to reflect God to those who serve under your leadership. How does God lead his people? That's your, if you're a believer, it's your job to reflect that in your workplace. The way you display authority defines the way that those who serve under your authority understand it. So if you're trying to maybe invite a coworker to church who works under you, and you're inviting them into a relationship with God where they would respect his authority in their lives, the first snapshot of authority comes from you. Now think about that. The way you display authority will reflect the way people see God's authority. And the last thing is this. It's, it's your role to reflect the character of God to the people who work under, under you and with you. Now, does that mean we always get it right morally? No. What do we do when we don't? We're quick to repent. One of the most powerful things you can do as a supervisor is admit that you're wrong. When you're wrong, Okay. Work hard to make sure you're not, but when you are, in humility, go to the people that you've been wrong with and say, listen, I got this one wrong. I'm gonna take this one. I'm gonna own this one. Guess what happens? The respect for you goes up, but the respect for authority goes up. I wanna end with these questions. Um, there are um, 14 of them. Um, I'm just going to ask these questions for you to begin taking some inventory on these different arenas in your life. And then I'm going to invite the prayer team down and the worship team, and I'm going to pray over us, okay? So here's some questions for us to consider now if, coming from this message. How are you doing? Okay, we're going to start back with family. How are you doing at reflecting the character of God in your home? Wives, specifically. How are you doing at respecting your husbands in proportion to what Jesus deserves, not what they deserve? How are you doing at that? How are you doing at honoring your husbands as to the Lord? Husbands, how are we doing? How are we doing at loving our wives sacrificially 
by laying ourselves down for them in humility and service. Evidently, it was a big deal to Paul. He went on to explain it. Where with the wives, he said, just submit. With husbands, he said, love, but do it the way that Jesus did, laying his life down for his bride. Husbands, how are we doing at that? Reflecting the character of God in our marriages. Parents, how are we doing at reflecting the character of God in our discipline? And maybe some better questions are, do your children, first of all, do they expect discipline? Does it catch them off guard or do they expect it? When they've done wrong, they expect to have to give an account. Are you consistent and just in your discipline? Are you using discipline to shape character or modify behavior? Are you doing, excuse me, how are you doing at reflecting the image of God in your workplace? Almost every person, at least adults in the room, have a job. How are you doing at reflecting the character of God in your workplace? How well, let's start here, how well do you respond to authority? How well do you respond to authority? Are you working for the good of the company or for the applause of man? Are you more interested in becoming your boss's favorite or serving the mission of the company? Once again, how well do you respond to authority? And for those of you who are in a leadership role, how well are you carrying out your authority? I wanna leave us with those questions. I think those are some good personal inventory questions. Paul's point is this. The gospel that saves us restores us and it restores the image we were created in and that image is for all arenas of life. There's not a church you and a marriage you. There's one you. There's not a church you and a parenting you. There's one you. There's not a church you and a work you. There's one you that we might reflect the image of Christ in all arenas of life. I wanna pray for us and prayer partners, if you would come down front, I'll invite the worship team to go ahead and and come on up. Um, After I pray, um, a few of the prayer partners will be at the back and a few will be down here at the front. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, um, I wanna share with something with you that I find um, exciting. The promise of the gospel is this. That when you believe, when you hear the gospel and believe it, something happens to you. That whatever is inside of you that is dead and dark and not alive and doesn't have hope becomes alive. A new you emerges when you simply believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He's died for your sins. But something else happens. God begins the process of restoring your God-given purpose and identity. You were created in his image, not the image that you see on the internet, on Facebook, on a magazine, on a television commercial. You were created in his image. And at the moment you believe, he begins restoring his image in you in all arenas of life. And that is yours to be had today by simply responding to Jesus in faith. 
Our prayer partners will be down here at the front and also at the back. They're ready to pray with you and talk more about becoming a Christian. I'm going to pray for us now and then we'll respond.